LinkedIn presents. I'm Rufus Griscom, and this is The Next Big Idea. Today, money won't make you happy, but lower expectations might. There's a great short story by John Updike. A man riding home on the train scribbles notes to himself about something he read in the paper, that the 1950s are coming back. Kind years to me, he reminisces, entered them poor and left them comfortable, entered them chaste and left them a father. Not only kind years, but beautiful ones. The unnamed narrator is not the only one who feels nostalgic for the era of malt shops, drive-in movies, and chrome-trimmed Chevys. A few years ago, a nonprofit asked Americans, are things better or worse than they were in 1950? 51% said worse. Seen from the hazy distance of 60-odd years, I can understand why the 50s might look pretty good. I can picture an earnest young veteran going to school on the GI Bill, finding a well-paying job at a highly regarded company, marrying Annette, his high school sweetheart, and moving to a split level in the suburbs to raise their children and mow the lawn. Simpler times. Even the coffee tasted better. Mmm, smell good ground coffee. That's Maxwell House coffee. Listen to the sound of the Maxwell House coffee pot at work. But here's the thing. When you get past the white picket fence sentimentality and see the 50s for what they really were, you find you're looking at an era that, by almost every conceivable measure, was worse than our own. In 1955, median family income adjusted for inflation was $29,000. Today, it's $70,000. Back then, taxes were higher and food more expensive. Homes were smaller, and a third of them didn't have indoor plumbing. Jim Crow laws enforced segregation. Women weren't allowed to open bank accounts. And let's be honest, Maxwell House kind of sucks. So why do so many of our fellow Americans pine for that era? Morgan Housel offers an intriguing answer in his new book, Same As Ever, Timeless Lessons on Risk, Opportunity, and Living a Good Life. He says it comes down to two factors. First, folks in the 50s had just come out of the Great Depression and World War II. In the aftermath of these traumas, small improvements to their lives, like a steady job, food on the table, nobody's shooting at you, felt monumental. Second, and this is crucial, the gap in the 1950s between you and most of the people around you was a lot smaller. If you were white and middle class in the Eisenhower years, keeping up with the Joneses wasn't too hard because the Joneses were just like you. Sure, they drove a Cadillac and you drove a Ford, but your houses were about the same size, your kids went to the same school, and in August, you both went camping on Lake Winnipesaukee. Compare that to today. We don't just measure ourselves against our neighbors. Thanks to social media, we can now compare ourselves to everyone. And everyone often takes the form of a Harvard-educated TED Talker turned TikTok influencer who can't resist posting pictures of her mega yacht. When we long for the 1950s, we're not longing for an era without Advil, GPS, and equal rights. We're longing for an era when the expectations of what a good life looked like were a lot lower. 
Because it turns out stuff doesn't make you happy. Want to be happy? Try having low expectations. That's one of the big lessons I learned from Morgan Housel, but by no means the only one. I also learned why stories are so much more powerful than statistics, how good news compounds quietly over time, and why we all need to give ourselves 20% bullshit allowances. I also learned how the breathtaking success of Morgan's first book, The Psychology of Money, they printed 5,000 copies, it sold 4 million, enabled him to verify his thesis. It's nice to make a bunch of money, but it doesn't buy happiness. We'll get into all of that right after the break. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Morgan Housel, welcome to the Next Big Idea podcast. Such an honor to be here, Rufus. Thank you so much. Morgan, you have a new book out called Same as Ever, A Guide to What Never Changes. Your first book was The Psychology of Money, and it sold an astonishing 4 million copies. As I understand it, you're not a psychologist, you're not an economist, but you did park Ferraris when you had a job as a valet at a fancy hotel in LA. Was this your primary qualification for writing a book called The Psychology of Money? Uh, yes, and still is to this day. You're right, though, that not only am I not a psychologist, I'm not an economist, I'm not a financial advisor, I'm not a portfolio manager, never have uh, been. I've been a writer for my entire career, always a financial writer, but I've always just kind of considered myself someone not in the trenches, but someone just up in the bleachers observing what's going on and trying to figure out for myself how the world works and then trying to write a story behind it. What do you think the key insights were in psychology of money that caused it to resonate as it did? I mean, just for listeners out there, 4 million copies of a book is totally insane. Like a bestseller you see on the New York Times bestseller list might sell like 100,000 copies, right? So, so 4 million is like a 40x bestseller. What, why do you think it resonated as it did? I think it's always the case in any kind of really surprise viral success, like regardless of what it is, that luck is playing a, a tremendous role. Not all of it. You can't just say, oh, I just got lucky and leave it there. Like there, like something happened that you did right that worked it. But mm -hmm. the first print run of Psychology Money was 5,000 copies because that's what we thought it would sell. And so to hit 4 million, you're like, look, something happened there that myself and the publisher and other people did not anticipate. And I think that thing is luck. I mean, just one example of this, it was published in September of 2020. Well, during that period, Everyone was kind of still on lockdown, locked in their houses. What did a lot of those people want to do? Buy books. So the entire book industry was like a bonanza in 2020. The other thing that was happening was a lot of these people had stimulus money. And because of Fed policy, the stock market was going crazy. So a lot of these people were stuck in their house, watching the stock market go straight up and wanting to learn more about it at this yeah. moment that psychology money came out. Well, we picked that date, September, 2020. We picked that date in 2019. We had no idea what the state of the world was going to be. That was a level of luck that came out. And I think if it was published in 2018, it would not be a 20th as successful as it was. So there was a lot of things like that. Oh, interesting. That I think yeah, that we yeah. that like are, are things that I cannot replicate. If there is something that is, I think, different mm -hmm. and unique about this book, it's a finance book that is just telling stories that anybody can comprehend. There's no, there's no formulas, there's no data, there's no charts. It's just here are stories about how people's heads work that I think can shed some light on finance. 
But it strikes me that maybe one of the things that made psychology of money resonate so much is that you know, there's sort of this, I picture like a billboard on the side of the highway that's like, if only you make X dollars, you're going to live in this dreamland with the pool and the sunshine and the and this perfect life that you imagine. But behind that billboard, there's nothing, or, or at least it's not, it's not what people expect. And you had the insight to sort of call that out before making money, <laughs> and, and quite ironically, in the process of calling out that kind of mirage, you actually made a bunch of money <laughs> and now you're in a position to tell us whether whether that that point of view is true it's less about true or false but i think when you make a little bit of money you realize like look some things are better and a lot of things are the same and maybe a couple things are worse yeah. now when you are dreaming about making money you only focus on the former the thing like here's what's going to be better you're never thinking about what's going to be the same or what's or definitely not thinking about what's going to be worse so much of your happiness, my happiness, your ha everybody's happiness comes down. It's things like your relationship with your partner, the happiness of your kids, yeah. if you have them, your health, how well you're sleeping at night. And by and large, money is not going to change those, at least to any significant degree, particularly if you're already starting with like a healthy amount of middle-class income. Like if you're dirt poor, then it's going to change your family life, of course. But for a lot of these people, it's like, look, what actually made you happy is not going to be that much. People make this mistake when they're dreaming about a vacation. If I sitting here today in rainy Seattle dream about going on vacation to Maui, it seems incredible. Like, oh, that would be so much fun. I'm going to sit on the beach. It's perfect weather. It's great. But then when you actually get to Maui, what's happening is your flight was delayed. You're jet lagged. You got sunscreen in your eyes. All these things that you're ignoring when you're dreaming. But in the moment, that's actually what's happening to you. And I think it's really the true, the same thing with money that... Look, if I compare myself today to four years ago, I think I am more content professionally. Mm -hmm. But am I happier? No, no. Do I wake up smiling more? No, no. Does my wife love me more? No. Are my kids better? Like, no. All these things that actually make a difference yeah. haven't really changed that much. Well, I think it's good, Morgan, that you didn't find after after doing very well uh, on your first book that money actually, in fact, made you dramatically happier because that would have been really embarrassing. That would, <laughs> I, would have, I, I, I would have hidden that from everybody. Right. You would have been like, oh, my gosh, uh, this is amazing, but I was totally wrong. Um, part of what I think may be going on is that this gap we're talking about between the belief that wealth will deliver happiness and the actual experience people have is, you point out, part of the problem. And you say, the first rule of happiness is low expectations. I, I love this. Can, can, you, can you tell us why? Well, I think it's, it's a tragedy. It happens at the entire society level that society becomes richer, wealthier, higher life expectancy, better technologies. Life improves for everybody. And nobody feels any better off for it because their expectations grew in lockstep with that prosperity. And so everyone talks about price inflation, you know, like the price of your groceries going up. A much more sinister and hidden thing in the world is expectations inflation, where your definition of a good life inflates over time. Mm. And if you look back at the 1950s, which were by and large, like we remember as this prosperous period of like white picket fence, dad who worked and a mother who stayed home and raised a kid. It was like this, you, you can make out this like leave it to beaver, beautiful American life. Yeah. I think a lot of what happens and why the 50s felt so great at the time is because people had very low expectations. And remember this period, they had just finished the Great Depression and World War II and their expectations of 
prosperity were so freaking low at this period that any amount of prosperity that they have felt like a dream, felt incredible. And then the other thing that was going on was for this brief period of time in the 1950s, there was very little wealth inequality. The gap between rich and poor was relatively very low. And that made it so that your expectations of what constituted a good life was pretty low because you were not your your expectations were not being inflated by billionaires driving Rolls Royces and you know you know flying private jets and you get to see that on Instagram and whatnot. Everyone around you was probably living about the same life as you were, and therefore it was easy to keep your expectations in check. And I think what has happened, not just in the last eighty years, but really in the last ten years, is things have by and large gotten better for most people. Not everybody, but most people. But nobody appreciates it because everyone's expectations have just exploded because of social comparison on social media, where what you're seeing is like the highlight reel of people's lives. And this has been happening forever. There's this great quote from Montesquieu. He said this 300 years ago. He said, if you only wish to be happy, that is very easy to achieve. But everybody wants to be happier than other people. And that is very difficult because we assume other people are happier than they actually are. That's been, he said that 300 years ago. It's It's as true today as it's ever been. What's wild about this example, and I, I was very interested in this section about the 1950s, we used to have more of a, of a local, I think, perspective of, you know, if you're competing with the Joneses, the Joneses were across the street. Now, due to, you know, 50 years of, you know, mass media and more recently social media, we compare our lives to the lives of like, you know, people in Beverly Hills, right? So yeah. so to the extent that comparison is the thief of joy and it's all about expectation management, when we take our comparison set and expand it dramatically, that that does us like a brutal disservice psychologically, right? Someone explained this recently. They said, we went from keeping up with the Joneses to keeping up with the Kardashians. It's kind of how it worked. Right, and I thought, like, that's, right, right, that's exactly right. what happened. Another, I mean, a really interesting point here that you brought up too is before the radio, came about in the 19-teens, 1920s, every town in America, if not the world, had the town's opera singer, the town's best yes. boxer, the town's Total, best singer. Yeah. And it was, it was individual to that town. Once the radio came about, 99% of those singers went out of business because yeah. now everyone could listen to the best opera singer and the best yeah. in the country. Why would you listen to the 40th best who happens to live in your town when you can listen to the best in the country that's on the radio? And I think social media has done that in a big way. It used to be when I was a kid, when you were a kid, you had the prettiest girl in town, the prettiest girl at your high school. Now it's on Instagram. It's going to be the prettiest girl in the world that you're comparing yourself to. And now everybody relative to that person, that boy, that girl feels inferior. So the ability to feel inferior about yourself across any metric is greater today than it's ever been. So there's the problem of expectation management. And that's, and, and that's, a, that's a real question. How do we do better at managing down our expectations? Because you know, if, if happiness is reality divided by expectations, it's, it's easier to modify our expectations than it is to modify reality, arguably, right? Yeah. Um, but then there's also the question of the trajectory of our expectations over time. And this reminds me of, of this quote from actor Will Smith that, that, that you have in the book. Becoming famous is amazing. Being famous is a mixed bag. Losing fame is miserable. <laughs> right? So, yeah. so it, it, it's, it's be careful what you wish for. I think at the society level, the only way that society can really have low expectations relative to its success is 
during or after a very traumatic event. So you, so you mentioned, you know, in the early 1950s, the reason expectations were so low is because they just experienced the Great Depression and World War II, two of the most painful traumatic events in U.S. history. That's why expectations were low. You can say the same thing to lesser degrees about the U.S. economy in 2009 coming out of the financial crisis. Expectations were very low because so many people had been traumatized right before it. So this is a, like part of it is careful what you wish for, because if you want a society with low expectations, it's going to be a society that was just bludgeoned just before it. So it's like, that's not great. But like, how can you have yeah. a, a society that is healthy and prosperous and peaceful and have low expectations? You can't. Doesn't exist. Will never exist. Has never existed. And the most likely outcome, I think, is that my grandkids, your grandkids, will live in a world 30 or 40 years from now in which they are earning more money, living longer, living with way better technologies, and they're not any happier for it whatsoever. Yeah. I think that's, it's kind of a sad thing to contemplate, but that's how it's virtually always existed in the world. You know, I wonder, it just occurred to me that maybe this practice that we're all encouraged to do of expressing gratitude every morning, and maybe part of what that does is it just sort of reminds people like, hey, don't take this for granted, right? And, and maybe that is just in a small way in 30 seconds, a little bit of an expectation management exercise. And I, I think I see this in my, in my own life too, that I, I find it easiest to be grateful right after something terrible has happened or or, some, or look like something terrible had happened. Uh, I, I, I tell a story in same as ever about a, a near death experience that I had when I was a teenager of coming yeah. you know, really, really close to dying. And one of the passages I use in that chapter was when my dad saw me later that day, mm. he said, I've never been so happy to see you. And it was the only time in my life that I've seen him cry. And mm -hmm. so that was a thing where just, just looking at me brought him to tears mm -hmm. because his expectations or his realization that I could have been so easily killed that day were brought to light. So I think that's, yeah. that's one of the tragedies here is that our expectations are only put into view during tragedies. Such a, a moving and uh, upsetting you know, story that you, you, you lost two good friends in, a, in an avalanche and, and you almost were on that same ski run that would have put you in the avalanche. And I imagine that something like that, you never forget. And it, it kind of keeps things in check and says, you know, hey, just to be breathing and walking and, you know, waking up in the morning is, is, a, is a gift. Well, I see what's so true, Rufus, too, is that I think in the immediate aftermath, that was true. Waking up is just like, oh, I'm so, yeah. I'm so, I'm so grateful. And maybe now if I force myself mm, to think about it, I can have that feeling. But do I wake up every single day now and think that? No, it's like it gets back to, because I've, you know, yeah, the ski sure. accident was t 22 years ago now. Yeah. And so it gets back to a lot of it. It's just like, it's very easy to re-anchor to higher expectations until they are forced yeah. lower by a tragedy. Yeah. Well, and, and so, but if we're going to plan to get rich and famous, it seems like it would be best to do it very slowly and incrementally, <laughs> right? I wouldn't wish upon my children like wild success in their 20s. That would be very hard to sustain over time, yeah. you know? And, and you, you may have kind of screwed this up, Morgan, given that you sold 4 million copies of your first book in your 30s. See, I, I think about this a lot, for real. I mean, it's the best problem in the world to have, but it is yeah. a problem to acknowledge to yourself that I very likely peaked at age 36 when Psychology Money came out. I think for a lot of this, what you want to avoid is attaching any kind of success to your identity. And so think about yeah. an A-list celebrity. We talked about Will Smith. Who is Will Smith? He is a famous actor. 
That's his job title. It is his identity. And if you take that away or even just erode it around the edges, it really hurts because you are eroding your identity uh, at a very, very different level. I, I, I don't think of myself as a writer. My first identity is father, husband, friend, neighbor. That's my first identity. Mm-hmm. And I, I think I, I do go out of my way to do that because there's going to become a day when I don't want to or cannot be a writer anymore. And I don't want to wake up that morning and say, who the hell am I? I still want that morning, wake up and say, I'm a father, I'm a husband. That's who I've always been. So keeping your identity separate from your career success, I think is, is really vital. When we think about the complexity of this question, you know, does money make you happy? This strikes me as a question that we don't tell the truth about it, and it's a problem in both directions. Like on the one hand, it's really helpful to acknowledge that, hey, to be truly impoverished is a serious problem. Making incrementally more money makes it possible to, say, have children and also read the newspaper. Having huge amounts of money introduces a bunch of problems that people don't anticipate. If you go from poor to middle class, then I think 90% of things in your life get better. If you go from middle class to upper class, 70% of things in your life get better. If you go from upper class to rich, 20% of things in your life get better. It's always, it's always going to be diminishing in, in, in that zone. Yeah. One place I've landed is I've kind of concluded that I have a community is everything theory of happiness. So if you ask the question like, will writing a book make me happy? Well, if writing a book will result in enhancing your community and meeting more people who become friends or who inspire you or who improve your community, then yes, it will. If it doesn't, it won't. You know, will, will, will becoming wealthy make you happy? Well, you know, if, if you look at the example of like lottery winners, there are a lot of cases where making a bunch of money actually has the effect of isolating you socially, right? Where, where mm-hmm. The people who were members of your community now all want something from you, and consequently, you don't have the same dynamic you once had, and it, and it, and it has the effect of eroding relationships, and your new relationships are, are hollow. On the other hand, losing a bunch of money can cause you to lose connection with your community um, in a way that can also be socially isolating. Yeah. Years ago, I did this consulting session with a group of NBA rookies. And a lot of them were just, were just drafted that year. They're 20 years old, 21 years old. And the point of this session was to kind of talk to them about money because everybody knows the typical path of professional athletes. You make a ton of money, your career's three years long, then you go bankrupt. And one of the, one of the NBA rookies, I think he was 19, brought up this point that I thought was so astute when we we're talking about athletes going bankrupt. He said, look, when you grew up in inner city poverty, and then you sign a $10 million contract. That is not your money. That is mom's money, dad's money, brother's money, cousin's money, grandma's money, neighbor's money. That money belongs to the whole community because you cannot just tell them, hey, back in the inner city poverty, good luck to you all. I got my money. I'm going to go buy a Bentley. You can't do that. So he said a lot of the reasons that athletes go bankrupt is not because they bought themselves a mansion. It's because they bought their fifth cousin a modest Mm -hmm. house and they felt so much social obligation to take care of all those people. And so that mm. is like an extreme example of what can happen with a lot of fast money. It's, it's easy to dream about how great this is going to be. And then you receive it. And it's like, oh, actually, there's a lot of baggage that's going to come with this that I did not anticipate. I know you and I both read the book, The Status Game by Will Storr. Yeah. It seems that in American culture, status is in most communities measured with wealth, with money. There may be some communities where it's academic tenure or... 
um, scientific citations of your research or Instagram likes, right? But it, it seems to have narrowed around around money as a measure of status. Um, but it feels to me like that is not necessarily genetic or wired in us. We're capable of being less greedy potentially, but status orientation does feel like something that's wired. That in every society around the world, people are very concerned with their status, whether it's measured by Instagram likes or the size of the yams that you grow, <laughs> right? Yeah. Might, might be the way your status is measured. How, how do you think about that? I think you have to separate status from admiration. And status, mm -hmm. it's, it's right that if you're talking about status, nothing is easier to measure and quantify than money. I think what people really want out of life though, is not necessarily status, although that's part of it, but they want admiration. And admiration is much more diverse than just measuring your net worth. Yes. So yes. think about a town where there's a doctor who makes $200,000 a year and an entrepreneur who rips people off and makes a million dollars a year. Which of those person has a higher status? Well, probably the entrepreneur because he lives in a bigger house and drives a nicer car and people knows he makes a lot of money. Who is admired more? The doctor, of course, who's saving people's lives even if he makes less money and has less status. So admiration can come from humor, intelligence, wisdom, uh, all these things that are not necessarily status, but they're actually what people want from life. Like when you frame it like that, it's so obvious what you should want. But what's also equally obvious is that what are people drawn to? Do they want to be uh, humorous and wise and, and loved? Or do they just want to make a lot of money? Particularly early on in their life, it tends to be the latter. I like this notion that thinking of status as adding value to your community, the evolved desire for status, it made sense that we felt a need to feel like we were respected and admired for adding value to our local community, right? So it's like, hey, you know, Morgan is really good at finding tubers. Like he, he just like, he goes out in the woods and comes back with tubers. And we love that guy because he's great at nuts and berries. And, you know, and Caleb is, is, is just an amazing hunter. And he comes back with, you know, and so-and-so is a great storyteller. And you could have like diversified ways of adding value to your community. If you're not adding value, then you start to feel this sort of low status, low self-esteem anxiety. One can see why that would have, ha have been selected for, right? Uh, uh, but, but I like this idea of personally of thinking about a local community of people you care about, your status measured as the value you add to that community in ways that are not the same, that are, that are diverse. There's a great idea from Warren Buffett where he talks about the reverse obituary. And he says, everyone mm. should write what you want your obituary to say at your funeral and then live your life backwards to kind of live up to it. And so most people in that exercise, if I said, Morgan, what do I want my obituary to say? I, I hope that when I die, hopefully a long time from now, people will say Morgan was a good father, a good husband, yeah. a good son, a caring friend. He helped his community. That's what I hope it says. And then you, and, and I think most people would want to say something similar like that. It's different for everyone, but something similar. But then you realize what's not in there. And almost nobody in that exercise is going to say that in their eulogy, they want people to talk about how much money they made and how many cars they owned and how big their house was. Because intuitively, you know, none of that matters. You intuitively know what you want is to be respected and admired. But what you're chasing on a daily basis is how can I get the bigger house, bigger car, more money? And so what you're chasing is what you even intuitively know is not what you actually want in your life. That's, that's the divergence between the status that we chase and the admiration that we actually aspire to.
The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tomer Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. and so. We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. You say at the outset of, of your new book, Same as Ever, that we tend to be attracted to, to change, to things that are surprising and exciting because those things trigger dopamine, we're wired to be attracted, right, to novelty. But you write, the behaviors that never change are history's most powerful lessons because they preview what to expect in the future. If we want to get smarter, we need to focus on things that are that are enduring. Is that is that the core argument? Yeah. And and a lot of it is just the acknowledgement of the acknowledgement of how bad we are at forecasting what's going to change. Yes. The next recession, the next bear market, who's going to win the next election? Even like what's the weather going to be next Friday? We're not good at these things. Yeah. We never have been. And I think we never will. We're always going to keep trying because the idea that we can't predict what the economy is going to do next is too painful to bear. But if you acknowledge how bad we are, then you, I think your focus naturally shifts towards, well, what, what do we know is going to happen? in the future, regardless of what the changes might be. I have no idea what the economy is going to do next, but I know how people respond to greed and fear and risk and uncertainty because that's never changed. You can read about how people were doing it 500 years ago and you look at it and you're like, oh, that's exactly how they do it yes. today. So then you know that's going to be part of your future. So let's focus on what we know is going to happen versus trying to pretend and fooling ourselves into thinking that we know what's going to change. Yeah. And you, you, you say that there's a very common life cycle of greed and fear. And I'm, I'm quoting you now. It goes like this. First, you assume good news is permanent. Then you become oblivious to bad news. Then you ignore bad news. Then you deny bad news. Then you panic at bad news. Then you accept bad news. Then you assume bad news is permanent, <laughs> right? Then you ignore good news, et cetera. And the cycle repeats, right? And so when we see this, that can help us, A, just be more comfortable and less afraid, but B, maybe make some some better decisions. Yeah, I think when when you look at these patterns over time and, you know, that pattern of the life cycle of greed and fear, that that's existed for literally thousands of years. And so you can look at that and you see it across a number of cultures in a number of time periods. And you're like, look, I know with certainty 
that we are going to experience that same pattern in the 2030s, in the 2040s, 50s, 60s, forever. Yeah. Um, so that's like when, when you find something that's always been true, you found something that is just particularly extremely true to pay a lot of attention to, particularly when you see something that has impacted various different cultures in the same way. When you see how a financial crisis that may have played out in France in the 1800s, the similarities to how the financial crisis in the United States played out in 2008, then you're like, look, we've just uncovered something that is just innate to how humans work. It's not even a cultural thing. It's not a time-specific thing. This is just, we found how humans work. That's something to pay the most attention to. And that's what I've tried to do as a financial writer is I've never been interested in saying or even paying attention to like, What's the stock market going to do next? Because I can't do it and nobody else can too. I've always been very interested as a student of history of just what can I read about how the world works from the 1800s or the 1200s and be like, oh, that's exactly how yeah. it works today. That's always yeah. been the most interesting thing to me about history. And, and, and this is part of what, what I've loved in my own journey of, you know, in business and in investing is that it's a place where we can study human behavior and the nature of reality and ask these really basic questions like, what could we know to be true? And the answer is very, very little, <laughs> right? There's like, you know, we're really bad. As you point out, like no one predicted the Great Depression, but it does seem like there's some things, there's some very small things we can know to be true, which obviously are, are what you're, you're, you're laying out in this book. But one, when, when, when we're talking about the stock market, it seems like we can be confident in saying that at least for more than 100 years, the stock market generally goes up driven by some some fundamental forces of you know increasing productivity, increasing population. But even that, it comes with the asterisks of in the United States. That's generally yeah. what's happened. Um, you look at the stock markets in Russia, uh, most of Europe during World War II, they, did, they, they were wiped out. They went to zero. So something that even is, is, has been historically true in the United States even comes with an asterisk of like, yes, but not a predictor of the future. True, true. Yeah, we had, we had Ray Dalio on the show. And of, of course, he, he's written a lot about debt cycles and, and the big cycles of changes of the global reserve currency. So you can see these multi-hundred year cycles of global reserve currencies being replaced by other ones, which tends to be disastrous for the, for the country whose currency was replaced. Yeah. And even something like that, it's interesting of like, so what was the reserve currency that was replaced a hundred years ago? Well, it was a switch from the from the pound to the dollar. Yeah. And so, okay, well, let's look at the 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 economy and the lifestyle of the UK over the last hundred years. By and large, not that bad. If that's the nightmare we're facing, it's actually not that bad. Japan is another one of like the Japanese economy has more or less yeah, stagnated right, for 35 right. years. But look at life in Japan for the last 30 years. Not perfect, not that bad. Not that bad. So it doesn't, it's not always the boogeyman people make it out to be. Yeah, these are, these are nice places, Japan and the UK, yeah. Yeah, not um, that bad. So among things that we can know to be true, um, I guess one of them would be that we, that we humans have a tendency to underestimate the power of compounding interest, right? Which Einstein called the eighth wonder of the world. Do you put that in the category of like, the power of slow of slow growth that compounds is astounding. Yeah, and it goes way far beyond compound interest in your bank account or in your investing account. I mean, COVID yeah. was most people's first blunt force experience with exponential growth of how something can go from infecting two people to 100 million people in like 
seems like the blink of an eye. And that's that's compounding an action in a very forceful way. Um, and there's a lot of things that compound like that. I write in the book that most most good news is slow compounding over time. So it's easy to ignore. But most bad news happens very, very fast. So bad news is September 11th. It's the financial crisis. It's COVID. Happens very fast. Pearl Harbor happens literally overnight. Whereas good news is like the improvement in heart disease mortality over the last 80 years, yes, which right. has saved literally tens of millions of lives. But you by and large never hear about it, never even think about it, because what happened was heart disease mortality got one and a half percent better every year for 80 years. Now, if you compound one and a half percent for 80 years, you get a miraculous result. But in any given year, to say nothing of any given week in the news cycle, nobody's talking about it. You're never going to see like breaking news on CNN, heart disease mortality improves by 0.01%. But over the course of a lifetime, it's, it's, the, it's the most incredible thing that we've experienced here. And so the discrepancy between how quickly bad news happens versus good news is slow compounding. So it's right. easy to ignore yeah. Yeah. is a big part of, of like the, the dynamic between optimism and pessimism. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so when it comes to financial decisions about how to manage your money, uh, I understand that you're invested exclusively in index funds personally. Is that is that right? That's pretty true, with the exception of uh, shares of Markel, where I'm on the board of directors. This would be correlated with your point of view that, that hey, it, it, frankly, it, it, it's somewhat informed by a humility about what we can and cannot predict, right? I mean, that that stock picking is very difficult but we can have some degree of confidence that the broader market will will rise over time. Is that I think uh, I think that's of true of what I believe around the edges. But the majority of why I'm a passive index fund investor is not because I think nobody can beat the market. I think there are smart people who can do that. Not many, but there are people who can do it. I'm not one of the passive zealots who's just like, nobody can do it. Don't even try it. That's yeah, not me. Yeah. But for two reasons why it works for me personally. One is because I want to use all of my bandwidth that I can focusing on what I think I'm good at, which is writing. Mm. I don't want to spend any okay. time trying to pick the right manager, trying to pick the right stocks because I have no ability to do that. Other people do, I don't. The other thing is that I know that if I can earn average market returns for yeah. an above average period of time, if I can hold on to index funds for 50 years, I will yeah. literally be in the top 2% of investors over time. My parents right. have kind of done this too. My parents are smart, educated people, but they have no financial background, no financial education, but they have owned Vanguard index funds for about 40 years now uh, without doing, they've never sold anything. Yeah. And if you look at their results relative to professional investors, they're in the top at least 5%, if not one or 2%. And yeah. they've done nothing. They didn't do anything yeah. for it. They just focused on their professions. Uh, yeah. So I think like when you look at that, if like the bet that I want to make, I want to focus all of my bandwidth on endurance and longevity. Because yeah. if I can be average for 50 years, that puts yeah. you in the top 1%. That's why I do it. Yeah. I personally come to the conclusion that, um, that it is reasonable to conclude that the NASDAQ 100, which has been meaningfully outperforming the you know the broader market for I don't know ten or twelve years now will continue to do so, and, and that there are some forces like Moore's law, and just just acceleration of technology and increase of productivity through technology that would appear to be trends that are accelerating, not decelerating. 
Would you go that far or, or you wouldn't agree with that? I would not disagree with that, but yeah. I would point out some anecdotal counters to it. The most successful stock over about the last 70 years, a very long period of time, it's not a technology stock. It's not Apple. It's not Google. It's not Microsoft. It's Philip Morris, Altria, the, the cigarette company, which has had zero technological innovation, has had zero improvement, is a, is a company that obviously ruins people's lives and whatnot. But here's what's interesting about it. The fact that people hate Altria, that there is this moral disgust towards the company, and a lot of people don't want to invest in it, has kept its valuation very low. When you have a valuation that's very low and you reinvest the dividends into a company that has a low valuation, compounding goes crazy. And that's why Altria is so successful. It's because people hate it, which makes the reinvestment rate of dividends supercharged over time. So a lot of the biggest returns come from boring old industrial companies that can just keep something going as Altria has for 70 years. And so it would not surprise me if we look back 30 years from now and the total stock market index versus the NASDAQ 100 are actually very close to each other. That would, that would actually not surprise me. You write about in Same As Ever, the tendency of success to have its own gravity and the tendency for large organizations to become less efficient, lose their mojo. Yeah. Um, and this has been true historically. Um, you may be familiar with, you know, Azim Bazaar, you know, makes a case, he's probably not the only one, that the law of large numbers that has historically slowed down the largest companies doesn't seem to be working in the same ways with big tech companies. You know, why? Because of, you know, the power of network effects and arguably, you know, Moore's law and tech acceleration. And so because we have we have seen now for for a couple decades, not for 60 years, but for a couple decades, like a different kind of a, a different kind of growth of, you know, these massive multi-trillion dollar companies continuing to grow at over 10% year over year. You see this as 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 not a new uh, law or or not a not a change in what has been the same as ever, but maybe something that's temporary. How, how do you see it? I don't know. I mean, my, my my response is going to be anecdotal, and maybe his response is much more analytical. He has better data than this. But just thinking about what he just said, if I were to say, like, look, let's go back twenty years ago, not that long ago, what were the top tech companies? AOL, Yahoo, yeah, Intel. Yeah. Uh, you know, you, you can need these companies that either like barely exist or are shells of their former selves. And that's within technology. So the idea that tech companies can be, I know this is not his argument, can be somewhat immune from that, com that competition. I don't know if that really, I, I, I don't know if there's much evidence of that, 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 that I've seen. And so, I, you know, it, it's definitely true that when you become large enough, you can build up some sort of moat around you. The company that has surprised me the most, or that I think is the most impressive that is a big tech company that has stayed not only relevant, but dominant for almost 50 years now is Microsoft. And mm -hmm. what's so incredible about it is that, and, and I, th I think Amazon falls in this company too, in this category, is that they have done it doing very different things. Microsoft went from, you know, Windows and Office to now cloud computing, like a very different thing. Amazon went from just a bookstore to an everything store to AWS. Like they're doing yes. very different things. That's that's what's incredible. And for a lot of the companies that are eventually going to fail, it's because they were very good at one thing. That's right. Just that one thing, just that one. And then once that thing becomes either obsolete or less important, like poof, you're out. Kodak was that. Kodak was extremely good at one thing, making film. They were not good at anything else whatsoever. And so when that one thing became obsolete, there's the, the whole company goes to zero. The other thing that's interesting here is that the word technology varies throughout history too. So there was a period when 
what technology meant was like cash register companies or plastic companies or, you know, companies that were like car companies yeah, used to be true, high tech, right. you know, if yeah. you go back a hundred years ago. And so now what, what we consider high tech today is just going to be considered boring, normal, old industrial companies 20 years from now. Um, so like that definition is always shifting over time too. Yeah. Yeah. One of my favorite sections of the book is when you talk about the power of stories. And you say a consistent truth is that the best story wins. You also make this interesting case at one point that if something is true, you only have to say it in one sentence. If something might be true, it requires a lot of explanation. <laughs> I love that. This yeah. explains why you write short books. So maybe all we need to say is the best story wins, right? <laughs> That's well, it's true. This is but, why, like, yeah. this is why poetry is the most powerful, like, written medium. It's because when poetry is done right in three sentences or three lines, you can convey like a really powerful truth. Yeah. I think this is why people love aphorisms too, is because in one yeah. line, you say something that is obviously true and profoundly true that a lot of books that are trying to go into great detail and depth, like fail to convey. So when something is, is really, when it's a great story, you can just have a one-liner and put it out there. A lot of politicians understand this as well. Make yeah. America great again. Um, it's morning in America. Uh, yes, we can. All these yeah. like political slogans that in three or four words, you can get people to be like, yes, that's it. That's what, I, that's what I'm going for. Versus if your political slogan was like, go read this manifesto. You're like, no, I, got, I don't have time for that. So it's always true that like a really powerful sentence can change the world in ways that a lot of long books cannot even hope for. Well, and, and, and you, you do this again and again in your writing, right? All these wonderfully pithy kind of aphoristic statements. So, so one thing you say that sort of expands on the storytelling theme is if you have the wrong answer, but you're a good storyteller, you'll probably get ahead for a while. If you have the right answer and you're a good storyteller, you'll almost certainly get ahead, <laughs> right? So, yeah. so it's like, you know, getting the answer to the question right is important. Telling the story right is essential. And I, I think you see this a lot with academics yeah. who, by and large, you hope at least have the right answers, at least some of them, at least to a higher degree than, than lay people. They have the quote unquote right answer. But a lot of them, if not the majority of them, are very poor storytellers because they came up in academia. So their ability to write for a lay audience is zero. They can only write for other academics. They're terrible, terrible writers. And then, so I think you compare that to someone who maybe has the wrong answer or the sort of right answer, but they're a great storyteller, a great writer, a great documentary filmmaker. That's who gets people's attention. So I use the example in, the, in, in that chapter of Ken Burns, who's the best documentary filmmaker who's ever existed. His documentaries are just like staggeringly good. You can't, you can't not watch them. And I think a lot of historians will look at Ken Burns and say, he did not uncover anything new. Everything that he wrote about the Civil War, the Holocaust, World War II, everybody already knew that. And you have all of these academic historians who are like spending their lives uncovering legitimately new information. And they look at Ken Burns and they're like, why does he get all the attention? Because he's a good storyteller. Because he writes it in a captivating way. He tells a story that is better than anything else that's ever been written about the Civil War or whatnot. The, the statistic I love about Ken Burns is that when his documentary on the Civil War came out in 1990, more Americans watched it that year than watched the Super Bowl. And, like, and this is for an event, the Civil War, that wow. everybody always, yeah. it's like the <laughs> right. most documented yeah, exactly. event in American history. Yeah. You, know, you know how it ends, but, you're, but everybody was captivated by this 10-hour documentary because it was such a good story. This is what the academic historians don't get. 
They think that if they just find the right answer and tell it to you in boring academic jargon, that they will convey a new truth. And you don't. You only convey truth to people when it's a good story that they can latch onto and capture the emotional side of what they're doing. Another example of this is comedians, I think, Mm. are literally the smartest people who understand human behavior that exist. I make this this statement that I think is like 80% true. I'm being tongue-in-cheek here that George Carlin understood human behavior better than Daniel Kahneman. Like comedians, they are, they understand how people work in a profound way. And oh. what makes them great is that they convey it in the best medium possible, which is humor. And so like this is George Carlin's skit where he says, "Have you ever noticed when you're driving that anyone who's driving slower than you is an idiot <laughs> and anyone driving faster than you is a maniac?" <laughs> Say, look at this idiot here. Will you just look at this idiot just creeping along? Whoa, look at that maniac. Go! A, A, it's hilarious. It's so funny. But B, nothing, nothing teaches like the value of relative perspective than something like that. So you totally. see that after, like after you're done laughing, you're like, wow, that's actually really profound. Right. And so exactly. that, that to me is a perfect example of best story wins. It's not what you know. It's how you convey it to people. You say optimism and pessimism should coexist. What, why should they coexist? Well, I think most people are either optimists or pessimists. They're one of the other. And if you think, if you look at people who not only become successful, but stay successful over the course of their life, they get both of those things to really coexist with each other. You need to be an optimist on one hand and a realist on the other. Same as ever is actually dedicated to what I call the reasonable optimist, which mm, as in no. my definition, I'm making this definition up, but it's, if you are somebody who thinks that the world is going to be great, that everything in your life is going to be great, the world, that's complacency. That's not optimism. You're not optimistic. Yeah, you are just complacent. Right. To me, reasonable optimism is things are going to be better in the future. Things are going to get better for myself and for the entire world. But the path to get there between now and then is going to be a constant chain of setback and surprise and calamity that we need to endure in order to get to a better world that's going to exist at some point in the future. That's reasonable optimism. I use the example of, of Bill Gates in this, where when he started Microsoft in the 70s, he took the biggest optimistic swing that any entrepreneur has ever taken of saying, Every desk in the world needs to have a computer on it. That was the most optimistic swing anyone's ever taken. At the same time, he managed Microsoft in the most pessimistic way you possibly could, which is he said, Microsoft always needs to have enough cash in the bank to make payroll for one year with no revenue. And asked why he did that, he would say, because because there's no guarantee that we're going to exist tomorrow. You need to have that kind of pessimism in your budget in order to survive the realities of technology. And so... That was a perfect example. Crazy optimistic and very pessimistic at the same time. That's, I think, at least one of the reasons why Microsoft has done so well over time. It's if you're only optimistic, you're going to run yourself over a cliff. If you're only pessimistic, you're never going to get out of bed in the morning. You need both of them to coexist. I love it. I love it. It reminds me of the great Winston Churchill line, success consists of going from failure to failure without loss of enthusiasm. <laughs> it's very <laughs> hard to do. Right. It's hard to do. Um, you say inefficiency is good. Why is that? I mean, I'll talk about at the individual level. Yeah. If you want to be have an efficient calendar, a lot of people, what that, what that means to them is every minute of your day from the moment you wake up to the moment you go to bed is scheduled. As soon as I wake up, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. At 12.05, I'm going to do this. At 1.52, I'm going to do this. That looks like an efficient schedule. That's actually one of the least 
helpful and most harmful schedules that you can have because so much of what is most productive in your day is unstructured time where you give yourself, you give your mind permission to wander. You give yourself permission to think. And to, for a lot of people, for most people, their best ideas, their most productive work is going to happen when they're in the shower or going for a walk or laying on the couch or chit-chatting with a friend. That's when you're actually going to come up with your best ideas. And when you yeah, have yeah. a perfectly efficient schedule, you are removing all of that from your life. So a lot of the most successful entrepreneurs and whatnot, their schedules look more or less empty. That mm -hmm. is by design. is so that they can let their mind wander and focus on a single problem. I think you see this in businesses too, where the pursuit of efficiency backfires. You see this in manufacturing over the last mm. 20 years, where yeah. there's such a push yeah. for more efficient, 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 just-in-time manufacturing, no yep. slack. It's just like, we're just running this thing down to the wire. And then what happens in 2021 when supply chains break is all those businesses just crumble. They had no room for error whatsoever. And as soon as there was any hiccup in the supply chains, their assembly lines just stopped. They had no slack. And now you look back in hindsight and it's like, if you had held more inventory, if you looked a little bit more quote unquote inefficient, you guys would have done so much better. So yeah. a lot of this is understanding the power of room for error. That look, what looks like it's it's it is efficiency is actually just weeding out room for error that's going to come back to bite you. Yeah. And and do you apply this to your life? I imagine your your schedule of posting, I don't know, roughly a blog post a week or have you built this into your schedule? I think it, it used to be better than it is now. I, yeah. I look back and I think I think some of the best writing I ever did was 2020 and 2021. Mm. The reason why is because I, like everyone else, was on some form of lockdown. I was not traveling. I wasn't I wasn't traveling for work. I wasn't going to restaurants with friends. I was I sat in home and I thought about writing. And I think because my schedule was so quote unquote inefficient, my schedule was mm -hmm. empty during those periods, I did some of my best work. I think no. there is a counter to this too, of like when I look back at periods in my life where I, I was doing my worst writing, where I look back, I'm like, man, what was happening then? What was happening then is I was really busy doing other stuff. I was traveling. I was, I, I had my, my yeah. kids were, I, I had infants and whatnot. It's like, it's, it's always true that I, I, like I do my best work when I have the most slack in my schedule. Yeah. And I think that's true yeah. for a lot of people. And by the way, it also is more fun, <laughs> right? I mean, I think yeah. it's, I think it's like, if you can, if you can try to schedule your life, uh, and do your work in such a way that there's, as you say, time for, um, you know, for creativity and discovery and serendipity and conversations with people that you might not have had. Um, it, it, it's a higher quality of life, and it probably also is is more efficient. And you, you, you quote Amos Tversky as saying, you waste years by not being able to waste hours. There's another great quote from uh, Nassim Taleb where he says, my only definition of success is how much time you have to kill. And I yeah, love that. And if like, yeah. if you meet someone and they're always just like, oh, I'm too busy, too busy, too busy, too busy. That is a form of poverty that exists. Yeah. It's a unique form of poverty, but that's really what I would consider it. The person who I want to be and the person who I want to become is a person who, when, if a friend calls me up and says, can you go do this? I can always say yes. I never want to say, no, I'm too busy. I'm too busy. That's again, that's a form of poverty that I want to avoid. Uh, on the other hand, you say that a subset of the inefficiency argument is you have to be able to put up with a certain amount of bullshit. Makes me think of, of Jeff Bezos saying, if you can get your work life to where you enjoy half of it, that's amazing. Very few people ever achieve that. So, so we should assume that there's going to be a meaningful percentage of our work, maybe 50%, that 
it's just a pain in the rear. Is Probably right? true for <laughs> marriages, true for being a parent, that these are all very rewarding things that are worth pursuing. But like anything else in life, anything that is rewarding comes with a cost attached to it. And the cost for a lot of things in life is just the willingness to put up with and endure uncertainty, hassle, nonsense, pain, bullshit, yeah. all of it. I think in anyone's life, you should give yourself a 20% bullshit allowance. That 20% of the time yeah. and 20% of yeah. the days, 20% of the things that happen are going to be things where you're like, Ugh, all right, I guess I got to put up with this. My flight's delayed. My toilet's leaking. My car broke down. I'm sick. My kids are sick. Whatever it is, 20% of your life is going to be some form of BS. And if you are not willing to put up with that, you are blown apart by the, by the tiniest petty annoyance in your life. Yeah. And this is back to the managing expectations point, right? Which is, I think I once heard a comedian who had a great line about people complaining about, you know, airplane delays and just the discomfort of air travel. And he talks about like what it was like to go across the country in a wagon train 150 years ago. Right? You, you just imagine people going across the country in, in a wagon train, just all the kind of extreme discomfort and near-death experiences and just like brutal experience. And to think that their great-great-grandkids would be in luxurious airports complaining about gate changes. Right. <laughs> right. But here here's what's here's the other thing that's I think equally true. You cannot expect people flying on Delta today to when they board the plane say, "Man, at, at, at least this is better than a wagon train." That's a, it's just not how people's heads work. Everyone is going to compare themselves to what they expect. And what they expect now is that my flight should be on time. And you can even say the people going across by wagon may have said like, man, at least we didn't have to walk. At least we have a wagon and some oxen to pull us across right, for most sure. of it. That's right. Like the new technologies very quickly become necessities. Season's greetings, everyone. I'm Anya Shishnevsky, assistant editor here at the Next Big Idea Club. Nothing says the holidays to me quite like a cozy fireplace, snow drifting past the windows, and a good book in my hands. Even if you don't live in a region with snowy winters, I'd bet you agree that the winter months are a great time to slow down and reflect on your habits, relationships, and opinions. Our curated selection of nonfiction titles here at the Next Big Idea Club are meant to spark that inner flame of curiosity, motivate you towards your goals, and expand your mind. Our membership packs a perfect tool belt for the lifelong learner. You'll get daily book bite summaries, written and read by the authors themselves, weekly author interviews, quarterly Q&As, and so much more. There's something here for everyone, including me. There have been times when I felt immobilized by heartache, but with the help of new releases about cultivating joy, voices at the Next Big Idea Club lit the pathway back to inner peace. At other times, I have felt on top of the world, and our content helped me channel that energy to its fullest potential. The best part is it comes from an amazing cast of authors. Level up this season with an NBIC membership for yourself or your loved ones. Take $75 off your order when you use the code GIFT75 at nextbigideaclub.com. That's GIFT75 at nextbigideaclub.com for $75 off.
I loved your section on incentives. And there are a few different kinds of incentives you identify. There are obviously financial incentives. And you say that in professions like law, medicine, and investing, doing nothing is often the best answer, but doing something is the career incentive, <laughs> right? And you say self-interest is a freight train of persuasion. So, you know, in those professions, medicine, law, investing, a lot of times for your patient or your client, the answer is don't do anything. You're fine. Your portfolio is fine. There's nothing to do. But if you're a financial advisor and you're always telling your client, oh, you're, you're fine. There's no changes need. Hard to make a business out of that. Hard to charge exactly what, what you want to do. I think this is true innocently for doctors, lawyers, where it's very hard to say, no, you're fine. Don't do anything. It's much easier to say, let's order some tests. Let's go do, let's go do something. That's the career incentive. And the other thing that's really true about incentives is that people underestimate the boundaries of their morality by when they don't understand how powerful incentives are. So after the financial crisis of 2008, it was very common for a lot of Americans to say those greedy, evil, son of a bitch, Wall Street bankers who ruined the economy. Yeah. And look, maybe there was, there was some truth in that. I'm not saying that was the wrong view. What almost every one of those people underestimated was that if you were offered a $7 million bonus by Lehman Brothers to package subprime bombs, you would have done the same damn thing. Yeah. No, I think it's a great insight, you know, that really it's these, as you, as what I think you call like cultural and tribal incentives are incredibly seductive. And the tendency of humans to do the same thing the group is doing is overwhelmingly powerful. But on the other hand, there's a silver lining to this, isn't there? You know, which is that like, okay, so belonging trumps rationality, right? We, th th this is the takeaway. But what that means is there's not just sort of a class of morally inferior people who cannot be understood and are destroying the world and will never change. It's just that it's all about incentives and the incentive to belong is overwhelmingly powerful. I think when you see somebody or a group of people doing something that you vehemently disagree with, rather than saying like, oh, they are evil and leaving it at that, I think a better yeah. question is to say, what have you experienced that I have not that makes, you, that makes you believe that? And then the secondary question is, if I experienced what you have, would I believe the same thing myself? And I think that's, there are a lot of things in life that are like this. Almost everybody who you see who's doing something very different than you has experienced something different than you have, and that's what's causing their beliefs. Well, we we have, uh, I think the hope is that we can use some of these constants in, in the world and in human behavior for good. The power of belonging, the power of storytelling, right? Ho ho hopefully we can employ these things uh, to, to make the world better. I, I hope so too. I mean, I, I wrote this book just trying to understand the world for myself. And there are a lot of things where it's like, I don't know if we can change any of these things. That's why they're in the book. They've been the case forever. But just acknowledging how they work, I think, is a huge step into trying to understand how this crazy human machine works. Well, thank you, Morgan Housel. Uh, fascinating conversation. Really appreciate your uh, taking time to be with us today. Thanks so much. Appreciate you having me. Morgan Housel is the author of The Psychology of Money and Same as Ever. He also hosts the Morgan Housel podcast and blogs every week at collabfund.com slash blog. One last thing on the way out. Want to support this show? 
become a Next Big Idea Club member. Sign up today and you'll get ad-free versions of the podcast, bonus conversations with our curators, Adam Grant, Malcolm Gladwell, Susan Kane, and Daniel Pink, invitations to our live events, and every quarter we'll send our favorite new books right to your doorstep. Learn more at nextbigideaclub.com and use the code podcast to get 20% off. Today's episode was written and produced by Caleb Bissinger. Sound designed by Mike Toda. Something we hope never changes, our fruitful partnership with the LinkedIn Podcast Network. I'm Rufus Criscom. See you next week. 